ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, where the big boys play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. You know, man, I was on my way to North Kakalaka, by the way of South Kakalaka, beginning all those races, and my telephone left those little. Hello, and uh, welcome to Where the Big Boys Play. Uh, I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Uh, pretty good. It's uh, snow flurrying here in Georgia, so every time we get snow down here, everybody acts like the apocalypse is upon us. So, well, you have a not... lot of running around. <laughs> you have not been to the UK, my friend, because there's a snow scare he- uh, here, and uh, once it does snow, uh, mark my words, the entire country shuts down. And uh... yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I had, we actually uh, the traffic was terrible on my ride home today because uh, it started sleeting. Uh, so people just scatter. It's quite sad, really, but that's just how it is. Now, I'm pleased to say that we uh, we have a guest with us, because uh, it's a pay-per-view, and we always have a, a guest on for a pay-per-view, and it's my pleasure to introduce Matt Petticord. How you doing, Matt? Good. How you doing? Now, uh, I'm very good. Now, uh, Matt, Matt is a guy I've been uh, reading online for uh seems like a long time now, at least since 2008, if not longer, um, and he's somebody who seems to have watched every single uh, wrestling uh, pay-per-view ever put out by WCW and WF. Is that right, Matt? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I'd say right right now, I'm about into about mid-1997, uh, seen all of those. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's been a long process, and just something that I uh, try to do in my spare time, and just something that I enjoy to do. You know, it's uh, it's not not nothing too difficult. I mean, it's something I enjoy, so it's not seen really as hard or anything like that. So, well, why don't you talk us uh, through your kind of background as a wrestling fan, where you're from, how it's impacted uh, you and uh, and the rest of it? Sure, um, I'm from a little town called Kernsville, North Carolina. Uh, and it's in between Greensboro and Winston-Salem. So it's a major hotbed for uh, wrestling and, uh, of course, uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, which is, of course, where you guys specialize in here on your podcast. And uh, my dad was a huge fan um, dating back into the early 70s. And uh, he lived, or actually worked, about a mile from the Greensboro Coliseum. And uh, he's told me numerous stories of... Uh, of uh, events there at the uh, Greensboro Coliseum and uh, seeing, you know, Johnny Weaver and Rip Hawk and Art Nelson and just all the old wrestlers that you would, uh, you would, you would uh, expect to be there in the 1970s. Johnny Valentine, um, he can, he would tell me stories about uh, Ole Anderson. There was one time this fan uh, 
tried to jump the rail and get it only and only just turned around and just knocked the guy out. Uh, he's, he just, it was just something that carried on, I guess, for my dad. Uh, it was, I guess, the way we, uh, we connected. And, uh, I've been a fan of it ever since, you know, I've been, you know, cognizant of, of television and, and, you know, uh, just life in general. I mean, you know, three or four years old, I would still be watching Steam and Ricky Steamboat and, uh, Ric Flair, uh, Brad Armstrong, Tom Zing, any, you know, all those guys from that time period, uh, especially in WCW. I, I was never really a big fan of WWF at the time. Um, I don't, I don't know why. I guess I always just felt it was more cartoonish than WCW. And now, now that I look at it now, I'm looking, you know, watching 1993 or, or 1991, you know, those, those years, you're like, man, this, this really isn't that great. But, you, uh, I guess as a kid, I still felt that WCW still had that sense, more, more of a sense of realism mm. and athleticism than, uh, the WWF did. Um, but I still, I still like the WWF to an extent. Uh, I think I liked it more around 1994, 95 when you had Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and those guys. I like those guys pretty good. But, uh, yeah, it carried on through the Monday Night Wars and I think, uh, I stopped really being a huge, you know, fan of wrestling, probably around 2006, 2007. Mm. I just, I just, just wasn't really that interested in it anymore, uh, because of, mainly because of the, the competition and the, the general reasons why people, you know, kind of stopped watching wrestling. It just wasn't the hot, cool thing to, to watch anymore, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, still, I, I guess, like you say, my, uh, my fandom still carries over into, to, uh, more nostalgic reasons now watching the old shows and just looking back on the, all the things that I liked as a kid. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's something we have in common. I think I st- stopped watching uh, the current uh, product around 2005, 2006 sort of time. Um, what made you uh, start writing the reviews and how did that how did that come about? Um, well, you probably, I don't know if you've ever read them. Uh, you've heard of Scott Keith, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Keith was a major influence, um, as you can tell with the formatting. It's almost a complete ripoff of them. Um, and another guy, I'll, I try my best. I'm not always successful at it, but I always try to add a sense of uh, humor to it. And I, I think I got that from a writer uh, called uh, Christopher Robin Zimmerman, CRZ. Oh yeah, I've heard of him, Chad. You, yeah, yeah, he's, he's an old uh, F Valley driver guy. Yeah, well, yeah, he's on. Uh, he's he used to be on uh, RSPW, and he's got his own forum now called the W dot com or org something like that. But uh, I remember reading his uh, Nitro and, and Raw reviews in probably nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine, and I just thought he was so funny, and it just seemed like you know, no matter how bad it got, he could always find something funny, and something to like about wrestling. So I tried to take the formatting of Scott Keith and the, the wrestling psychology from S- Scott Keith. And I would try to add in a little bit of the humor from CRZ. Try not to be, you know, I think some of my earlier reviews are a little, uh, now that I look at it, they're a little more pessimistic. Mm. And uh, I think I've tried to stop doing that as much. But, uh, yeah, I've uh, uh, tried to take a little bit from both guys and, and formulate my own style in, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I think I started... Uh, as far as doing my own reviews, I think I started around 2004. It was after I got out of high school, and uh, I, I, there, I'd say it was probably a good 
three years where I would do them pretty regularly, and then I kind of just got burned out for a little while. Um, you you can probably tell as you look at my site, it's not as updated as it used to be, or as often as it used to be. But you know, I'm still still doing them here and there. Yeah, and you, you used to write for uh, was it four four one one? Did you write for that site at some point? Yeah, I wrote for four one one mania dot com. I wrote for. Uh, Graham's Cawthon site, um, thehistoryofww.com. He was probably my uh, my biggest help as far as getting exposure. He was really a uh, really great guy to work for. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know if you want to. We want to have a conversation right now about uh, Scott Keith, but I mean, over the years, I've come to um, how can I put this? I've come to dislike uh, Scott Keith's reviewing style, and and also. A lot of the views that he has helped t to perpetuate um, among kind of uh, I don't know what you'd call them smart fans, smart smart fans. Um, how do you see the influence of uh, of Scott Keith now your yourself and the, the chat? I, I guess where you can come in here at any point yourself as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I, a lot of the, I think like I said, a lot of the things I learned about psychology is stuff that he pointed out. But I think when it comes down to it, you have to think for yourself. You have to know uh, what you like and everything. And I just uh, I try not to be as pessimistic as he is. I think like a lot of times he just dislikes people for uh, for reasons that aren't necessarily valid as I see them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I mean, to each to each his own. I mean, he can he can uh, have his own opinions. That's fine with me. Yeah, did, Chad, did you ever spend any time reading uh, Scott Keith stuff? And uh, yeah, what are your views on that general kind of ball game now? Um, I mean, Scott Keith was probably one of the first people I uh, can remember reading when I first started going to wrestling websites, probably back in 99, 2000. Uh, kind of like uh, he was writing his uh, columns were on WrestleLine.com. That's the first place I remember reading him. Uh, so I think at that point, for me, it was a great reference tool because, I mean, honestly, before the internet, I felt like, you know, in a lot of ways, I was the biggest wrestling fan in the world because I, obviously, the people at my school, you know, didn't like pro wrestling as much as I did, so I kind of didn't have an outlet. Uh, so here was somebody that reviewed all the shows that I grew up with and had Similar opinions. Um, I mean, I haven't read his stuff in a while, um, but I, I think maybe more instead of like his writing that's pessimistic, it may just be sort of like his opinions have kind of kept regurgitating themselves, um, and that's kind of a problem. So I agree that, you know, people that come on now and read his reviews, just if you watch the footage to form your own opinion and not let what he says dictate. And a lot of that kind of goes to Meltzer as well. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my feeling is that uh, Scott Keith is dated badly. Um, you know, not only his written style, but, you know, he kind of makes a lot of assumptions. Like, for example, anyone who's a fat guy uh, will typically get a dud rating from Scott Keith. I don't think I, I've ever seen a fat guy get more than a... One star from him, right? <laughs> uh, for example, I mean that's just just an example. Um, he has a very, 
a particular way of of looking at things. Yeah, he's a he's a very big fan of uh, Japanese work rate. I think is what it is. I think he's one of those guys like uh, Chris Benoit and your uh, Eddie Guerrero's. Those are the guys that he loves the most out of everyone. Um, so yeah, if you have somebody like King Kong Bundy, King Kong Bundy, or uh, uh, what's another big guy? Um, not necessarily gang. Vader. Vader would be better be one. He would be an exception. Uh, Big John. Uh, yeah, he would. Uh, he would have lesser. Yeah, Big John. Big John Stud does suck, though, from what I've seen. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I guess I guess it's again, it's like all about psychology, and he he has pretty good psychology in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah, I think the thing with Scott Keith is that his um, kind of assumption about what work rate is typically involves doing lots of moves and. Uh, I think the general view of what work rate is or what good work is um, has maybe moved on from that. Would, would you agree with that, Chad? Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, I would agree with that. That uh, the work rate, in some ways, has kind of evolved because. Um, I mean, I, I just think you go on a certain trajectory uh, with wrestling where. You know, you first discover it, and then you kind of discover a certain maybe, like, if you increase your fandom, you kind of discover the work rate-centric Crispin Waz, uh, Kurt Angle-type wrestlers. And then, you know, maybe later on you kind of evaluate and look back at stuff and say, well, you know, somebody like Mark Henry, it's not really logical for him to be doing moonsaults or something like that. So for his actual character and for his in-ring psychology, a lot of what he does makes sense. Yeah, and of course Scott Keith would be uh, famous or infamous for his uh, armbar criticism of <laughs> of Mark Henry. <laughs> I seem to remember. Um, well, do you uh, do you do you feel that uh, you still feel that wrestling is you know it's kind of a circus where you have just a little bit of everything that people come to see? Like you don't you don't have as many you don't have as different styles like you don't have the big guys you don't have a lot of the cruiserweights like you you once did you have a lot of the guys that you know the frat looking guys with six packs and tan and everything now you, do you still feel that wrestling is considered would be considered like a big big ring circus one ring circus I, I mean I, w I would say because most of the I mean most people that have become wrestling fans right now, their frame of reference will be the WWE. And I don't think you're getting a ton of variety there. Um, I mean, maybe a little bit more than you've had uh, maybe in like the mid-2000s. But certainly nothing where you'll see somebody like Kamala and then the next match a Dusty Rhodes and a Dick Murdoch and then, you know, maybe a, a midget match or something like that. Yeah, everybody kind of looks the same now to me. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, it's something I've uh, said on a number of uh, occasions as well, but I've taken a solemn vow um, that on this show, uh, I'm, not, I'm never going to use this show to, uh, to rag on the current product. That's my, uh, that's my solemn promise, so <laughs> I'm not going to say any more on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll move on. <laughs> um, Okay, well, uh, just just before we move on, to, uh, Chad, do you have any uh, questions for for Matt here? 
Um, I do not, but uh, I would just say I kind of echo what Parv said and that I've been reading your reviews for a long time, Matt, and they're certainly great uh, reference points for looking back at some of these shows. So thank you. Yeah, I, I, and I, I guess the, the last thing uh, I wanted to say is um, now, now, Chad, you're from Georgia. Um, Correct. And uh, Matt, you're from um, around the Greensboro area, or you're from Charlotte. Um, now, th- those are the kind of two traditional homes of Crockett slash WCW. Um, and I, I just, I was just wondering which one would you consider to be kind of closer to being the heart of what the organization is about? Um, I, don't, I mean, I would say, I, don't, I kind of, I guess from a from a logistical standpoint, I uh, think now we're really seeing the transition where it becomes Atlanta is kind of their focal point. Chad is right. Uh, definitely Atlanta, from especially from 1988 uh, to the end of the company, would definitely have been uh, the, Atlanta would have definitely been the the home for uh, WCW. But uh, I believe I believe it was Ricky Steamboat who said that he considered uh, the Greensboro Coliseum prior to '88 as the uh, the um, Madison Square Garden of the South. So that kind of puts it into perspective, to, for, especially for WWF fans, uh, how important Greensboro Coliseum was to Jim Crockett Promotions and wrestling in general. Yeah, and I was just wondering, like this move to Atlanta, how much did it alienate the uh, the kind of fans like your uh, dad, for example, who'd been going to Greensboro uh, for years? I don't know that it affected it too much until I would say about 1990, the end of 1990, 1991. Um, as far as I know, I'd have to double check with uh, Graham's website, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure they still came pretty regularly to Greensboro. Yeah, but I remember reading somewhere that some of the fans got pissed off when they moved Starcade from Greensboro the first time. Yeah, uh, again, I was I was so young at the time, I, I probably wasn't privy to those conversations just yet. But, I mean, after 91, kind of 1991 sort of time, um, though the fans in that region still remain kind of uh, your hardcore WCW fans, right? They wouldn't have uh, switched to, to Vince or anything. Uh, not likely. Uh, I guess also you got to think in 90, especially 92 into 91, Flair, Ric Flair had gone to the WWF. So maybe if there was some people who were just such Ric Flair marks that they, you know, didn't want to watch a WCW without him, uh, maybe they would have. Um, and I believe, I believe it was, uh, around 1991, 92, maybe, maybe later on in the decade. I'm not sure, but it seemed like the WWF took over the Greensboro Coliseum at that point. And, uh, and Jim Crockett promote well, actually the WCW, WCW took over uh, the Lawrence Joel Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Winston Salem. Uh, if you'll recall, you you might remember uh, fall brawl. A lot of fall brawls were uh, in uh, Winston Salem or in Greensboro. Yeah. Why don't we uh, Why don't we take a uh, go into the uh, Chi Town Rumble now? Um, a big pay per view event in 1989. Um, it's in. Uh, it took place 20th of February 1989 um, in the UIC Pavilion in Chicago. Um, any of you guys ever been to Chicago? I, I've been there a few times. I think it's a really nice state, <laughs> really nice town. <laughs> uh, I've only been there once. It was okay, but I mean, I was only there for a day, so not much of an opinion on. 
Oh, uh, I, I've been there for maybe a, a, about a week. Uh, my family was thinking about moving there at one point to a suburb outside of Chicago, but other than that, uh, no, I have, haven't really spent that much time there. So the version I watched here was um, the pay-per-view uh, version, and I had 10 minutes of hype with uh, Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. Did you have this as well, Chad? Uh, I did not, but I did also watch the pay-per-view version. And, Matt, you, uh, you've seen the, the video version, is that right? Yeah, I've seen the video version, and I've seen a little bit of the, you know, the little free show that they put out to advertise all the matches, too. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, so th- this is the 10-minute pre-show at the start, um, and we get a Road Warriors promo um, right at the start here, and uh, Hawk says that they're in their backyard at Chicago, so Dr. Death and uh, Kevin Sullivan can look out. Um, <laughs> then he says that uh, after beating uh, w- uh, Williams and Sullivan, they're going to go out uh, to Rush Street and clothesline pedestrians in celebration. <laughs> which I thought was quite a funny line. Um, <laughs> Animal says that they've been unbeaten in six years, and uh, Paul Ellering stands at the back and says nothing. He said one word throughout that interview, and that was uh, the word right. So one of the things that uh, Chad and I have um, done on this show is that we've been consistently down on Paul Ellering. Can't see any worth in him at all. I certainly can't. What's your views on Paul Ellering, Matt? I uh I think I always thought of him more as a handler than anything else. I didn't really think of him as much as a manager because, uh, like you say, uh, Hawk and Animal were were good enough on the mic, especially Hawk. I always thought he was hilarious on the mic, so I never really thought they really had a reason for him other than to be perceived as this handler for those two uh, big Hawk and for big Hawk and Animal. Yeah. Chad, did you see anything for Paul Ellering here to change your view on him? <laughs> Uh, I've n- I've not seen anything oh, of from course. the footage we saw yet to change my mind. Of course, you didn't see this. I I just remember. Yeah, I, I, I severely doubt this will change it. But okay. <laughs> well, he he literally just stands at the back and says nothing as uh, as Hawk and uh, Hawk at one point says right Paul and he says right. So there yeah, we are. That sounds pretty close to the promo we got actually during the show. So. Tony Schiavone uh, is here, and I've just written, what the hell is he doing here? I thought he's left, but I just remembered that this is probably his last week working for uh, the promotion. Um, I, I think it's the following week that he's gone. So um, this is uh, this is Tony here, and I, I was just—he was standing next to Jim Ross, um, and I was just thinking, is there any hidden tension here? Because Ross is essentially the reason that Schiavone is moving to WWF. Um, just any general thoughts on Tony Schiavone while we've got you uh, with us, Matt? Oh man, uh, I mean he's the voice of WCW to me. Uh, I don't, I, I mean I remember Jim Ross a little bit, but Tony Schiavone, I, I mean I, I didn't, I didn't. Uh, he got a little ridiculous towards the end. I think he just stopped caring. But before that, I, I mean probably what ninety nine or so. I still thought he was, you know, he would say every every week was the biggest moment in the history of. Sport <laughs> or whatever, but I mean, I, I still like Tony Schiavone. I, I didn't, I didn't really have a problem with him up until the end there. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Schiavone does get a bad rap for his last couple of years in the in the business. Um, but yeah, he's. I I've always liked him. I've always liked uh, 
Tony. He's solid, you know. He, he's a solid yeah. uh, play-by-play guy. Um, we get a promo from Sullivan and Williams uh, now, and Williams says uh, that, you know, the Row Warriors always say that they dine on danger and snack on death. And he says, well, here's danger and here's death. I thought this was a really good promo from uh, Dr. Death, actually. Um, probably the easily the best uh, Williams promo that uh, we've seen of him. Um, Kevin Sullivan says, <laughs> and this uh, made me laugh as well, he says, um, the only time we saw guys with makeup on in Chicago, we, we went to the wrong bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there we are. Now we get some talk about Rotunda and uh, the Rick Steiner match. Um, Ross says that Rotunda is probably the greatest TV champ of all time. Um, so up until 1989, would Rotunda be the greatest TV champ of all time? Any thoughts? Uh, he certainly wouldn't for me, but uh, that's more me hating Rotunda. So, <laughs> uh, th- th- Matt, what, what would your what would your pick be? For, I've I've kind of put you on the spot here, but. You think of a sure. TV champ from before '89? Um, yeah, I would. I liked uh, Tully Blanchard. I thought he was great as a TV champ. Um, who Who's your favorite, Chad? Uh, Tully's not a bad pick. Um, I'd certainly put him ahead of of uh, Rotunda. So that's not a bad pick at all. Uh, his first reign was really long, and then he held it a few more times. Uh, he actually had a couple lengthy reigns, uh, even. Anderson's first reign, I would put ahead of Tolly. I mean, of uh, Rotunda's right here. So I think Tolly or Arn or I can't believe I'm saying this, but maybe even Dusty. <laughs> and, uh, it's kind of strange. Like, uh, I feel like uh, Tolly Blanchard getting the TV title after uh, Jimmy Valiant and Great Kabuki uh, gave it some credibility again. I would agree with that. No, absolutely. I and it, during the. Uh, uh, the Magnum was the Magnum feud over the uh, TV title, or was it was it that national title that you had? Talking about Starcade? Yeah, the Starcade '85 show. That's for the TV title, right? It is for the US title. Oh, it's for the US, US. title. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I was going to say that for a while there. I think it's when it's the uh, Tully was feuding with uh, Dusty around kind of Starcade '84 sort of time. Um, he made it feel like the second, you know, the number two title for a while when he held it. I can't remember who the US champ was at that point, but um, the TV title felt like the bigger deal. I want to say it was Dick Slater. I have to look that up, but it was somewhat, somewhat like that. I, I want to say it was Wahoo McDaniel. I could be wrong. You're, you're, I, think you're, I think you're right. No, I think you're right. Um. See, uh, I mean, it's weird that they're pushing Rotunda here as, uh, like, they're pushing his TV title run as one of the greatest of all time at this point. Um, it's kind of strange that they were they were uh, going that way with it. We've been I mean, talk- he had a lengthy reign, but I just didn't think that. I mean, obviously, anybody who's listened to the past few shows knows I'm really low on his work, so. Yeah, we, we've been talking a lot about Mike Rotunda recently uh, on the uh, on the PWO forum there. Um, so at this point, we get a recap of the Rotunda Steiner Starcade match. Uh, Rotunda cuts a promo and calls uh, Rick Steiner stupid again. Um, we get uh, the focus turns to the Midnight's versus Midnight's uh, feud, uh, which is a six-man. Uh, the loser of the fall leaves the NWA match. Um, Cornette gives a fired up babyface promo 
and I have to say going into this it's a pretty hot looking card um, so we actually go to the coverage of the pay-per-view and the commentators are Jim Ross and Magnum TA now <laughs> um, at the start here Ross also says that Barry Windham is perhaps the greatest ever TV champion um, the greatest ever US champion which is a recurring line um, and uh, Magnum TA standing next to him and doesn't bat an eyelid as he says that. So, greatest US champ up until 1989. Barry Windham? Uh, man, I don't know about that either. Uh, he actually, though, honestly, up to that point, might be kind of up there. Uh, I mean, maybe Magnum, when he beat uh, Tully for it, he had a pretty good reign. Uh, our friend Nikita had a pretty decent reign. Yeah. Uh, them, them are probably the only two contenders, um, in, unless you want to go way back to Greg Valentine when he was sort of feuding with Piper in 83, but we didn't see uh, any of that except for their Starcade dog collar match. So kind of tough to judge. But he had a pretty lengthy reign as well. Any views on that, Matt? Greatest U.S. champ at this point? And we talked about Tony Schiavone using hyperboles. I'll tell you what. <laughs> um, I would say probably Magnum. I thought I thought he's another guy who uh, who's just, you know the strong baby face. He just gave more credibility to the title. I think any if you, anytime you look at the greatest of all time reign, you'd have to look at whether or not they gave credibility to the way. That's a, that's what Wolves do. Yeah, and I wonder if. Uh if you were going to do it properly, whether you'd actually go back to the late 70s and look at Flair versus Steamboat all the way back then. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just haven't seen enough of it personally. Uh, my dad might comment on that. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I also wonder whether back then, back in 1977, 78, um, whether for the Mid-Atlantic promotion, the U.S. title was the top title. Um and the end up because they didn't always have control of the NWA title. I could be wrong on that. That's that's right though, Chad, isn't it? Um, Harley Race, uh, when he was the champion, was not affiliated with Mid Atlantic. Yeah, I mean he certainly wasn't exclusive. I mean you you didn't get uh, really an exclusive uh, like the NWA champion wouldn't have been pretty much exclusive with the NWA to even you know, 87, 88, and even up to the early 90s, they still had a, that loose affiliation with AWA in 1990. So uh, so certainly back in the 70s, probably uh, consistently the U.S. championship or the, a tag team match would have been the top match on the card. And then if the NWA champion was in at that time, they would have been the main event, but they would have been a lot more uh, sporadic in their appearances. So we get a cheesy video package now, uh, with clips mainly from Starcade and Clash 5. Uh, Bob Coddle is with Michael Hayes, uh, and he has a dodgy microphone. Michael Hayes uh, puts over how hot the uh, card is. Um, uh, in a n nice promo to hype things up right at the start here, and he says it's showtime. So we're all excited for the, for the opener here. Uh, the ring announcer is Gary Michael Capetta, and our opening match is Michael P.S. Hayes <laughs> versus the Russian assassin number one with Paul Jones. 
Um, another guy we've consistently been down on on this show, uh, Matt, is Paul Jones. Do you have any uh, particularly strong views about him? <laughs> <laughs> strong views? I don't know about strong. I've heard he's a nice guy in real life. Uh, but as far as his, his managerial work, um, he was he left a lot to be desired. I just don't think he had a lot to say on the microphone, and what he did say, I didn't think was very convincing. Um, but I mean, I don't know. He's he's all he's all right. He didn't ever really had any main eventers except maybe the Assassin '84. Um, but yeah, he was he was okay. He's not one of my favorite managers. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm still waiting for him to show to show me any uh, justification for why he's been on the books for so long. Um, and I, c- I can't believe that Ivan Koloff left the promotion uh, in order to have Russian Assassin number one in singles matches like this. I mean, who wouldn't have preferred to see Michael Hayes versus Ivan Koloff here? <laughs> um, anyway, we get a we get a headlock from uh, the Russian to start. Um, there's no real shine uh, sequence for Hayes here. Just some kind of clumsy back and forth stuff. Um, Hayes mainly hypes the crowd um, and uh, does a nice little strut at one point. He works on uh, the Russian's uh, shoulder for a while. Um, George Scott seems to lo- George uh, Scott is the booker at this point, and he seems to love uh, arm work, which is going to be a recurring uh, theme tonight. This arm bar goes on for some time. Um, Paul Jones spends the majority of this match threatening to take his jacket off, uh, which seems to be the only spot that Paul Jones can actually do. Um, the Russian uh, comes back uh, with his usual basic uh, shit and a terrible looking clothesline uh, sickle at one point. Ten minutes have gone. Um, the Russian uh, sits in a chin lock. Hayes comes back with punches and uh, goes for a bulldog, but this is blocked. Hayes reverses a suplex, but misses an elbow. Uh, after 15 minutes of God, we get 10 All-American punches by Hayes, a DDT, and that's enough for one, two, three. Go to you first, Matt. Um, and this is just another match. Um, I think uh, this whole Russian heel thing is almost played out by 1989. I don't think uh, anybody really expected him to uh, come out of this the winner. So, uh, yeah, it's, it just was what it was. Chad? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I think this is pretty uh, mercifully cut down and butchered on the uh, Turner Home release. So what we got here on the pay-per-view version was a really kind of long basic match. Uh, Hayes was over with the crowd. and I thought he worked pretty hard and tried. So I, I, I mean, I didn't think this was as terrible as some of the Russian assassin uh, performances we'd seen, but it certainly wasn't very exciting either and not the best opener for the card. I, I can't really understand why Russian Assassin number one is getting a 15-minute single singles match on a on a pay-per-view show at this point. Um, yeah, there there will be some curious uh, kind of time decisions throughout this show, and this is the first example of it. Yeah, and I, I, there's definitely been a change in the way that the matches are structured since George Scott has taken over uh, the book. Um, not, I mean, we'll see the finishes later on, but... Um, this armwork thing is definitely a recurring trope. 
He seems to... Every single uh, face now seems to have an arm stretch sequence in their, <laughs> in their offensive game. Um, Bob Coddles with Ricky Steamboat, uh, who has his uh, kid and his wife uh, in tow with him. He gives a very old school, kind of true blue-eyed family man promo. Matt, did you see this this promo that he gives? Um, no, I did not. I think it was cut from the uh, Turner edit. Yeah. Any 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 thoughts on uh, Steamboat here? We we said last week uh, that he's going to have to kind of up his game in this feud uh, on the mic. Do you think he did this here? Chad? I mean, I, I I thought it was uh, better than that first promo that he gave at Clash Five. Um, it was pretty generic and kind of basic with what he said, but he, to me he showed a little more fire than that uh, first promo on Clash 5 when he looked kind of scared and didn't really know where to look at the camera and stuff like that. He was more composed here. Yeah. yeah, I, I can still see you know large portion of the crowd getting behind him, um, but also a portion of the crowd or a portion of the audience at home. Um, thinking that this was kind of a bit, you know, a bit gay, I guess, <laughs> to be th to be there with his uh, to be there with his wife and kid. I, d I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of like a 25 year old uh, sports fan uh, having that sort of reaction. Um, Bob Coddle uh, is now with uh, Paulie Dangerously, Randy Rose, and Jack Victory. So clearly, uh, Condry is uh, no showed um, here, and uh, Paulie tries to explain uh, this as a strategy. Um, he uh, basically says that victory is his secret weapon, and that the uh, Midnight Express have been preparing to face Dennis Condry, who eaten tag with for five years. So, what better way to pull the gypsy switch on them than to uh, have victory in instead? Um, so, what do we think of this? The utility man, <laughs> Jack Victory, uh, instead of uh, Dennis Condra here. I, I mean, I guess in this case they were sort of definitely uh, tied, their hands were tied behind their backs because Condry has sent, uh, pretty much just no-showed the day of. So they really kind of had to scramble and I guess just scrounged up Victory. Uh, I mean, Paulie's explanation, I think, was about as good as you could have gotten, given the time they had to come up with something. So that was good. Yeah, I mean, uh, Meltzer says here that the real reason that Con Conry wasn't there is because he had a disagreement with management over um, his future role, or even if he'd have a future role beyond this feud. Um, so he decided not to go. Uh, he stayed home in Colorado instead. This is the second time that Conry's uh, basically disappeared now. He's kind of weird for that. Um, does he come... What happens to Conry after this point? I, I mean, I don't think... Not a whole lot. I mean, I know when Ring of Honor reunited the Midnight Express in 04, I think it was, that was the first time that, like, Cornette... Condry, uh, Bobby Eaton, and then Stan Lane, I think, was with them, too. Uh, we're all in the ring together since this time. So this is pretty much kind of the end of the road for Condry. I mean, if you're, 
if you're on Randy, the national stage at least. If you're Randy Rose, um, you've got to be pretty pissed off at this, right? Well, I mean, if I was Randy Rose, also, uh, yeah, especially once we get to the match and talk about the finish, because I mean, your partner no shows, and then you're involved with a loser leaves town match, and I guess we can spoil he ends up leaving also. So you kind of both of the original Midnights are out after tonight. Yeah, you got any? Uh one of one of the talking points, uh, Matt, that we come with time and again with the Midnight Express is who is the best version of the Midnights. Uh, what's your view on that? Well, I think uh, I I kind of think the same way that Jim Cornette uh, explains. He explains that Condry's the better heel and Lane is the better wrestler. I think that's a good way to look at it, really. So Condry's the better heel, Lane is the better wrestler. What do you think of that, Chad? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's been proven that the Condry-Eaton duo uh, drew more, as far as from a gate standpoint, than the Lane-Eaton uh, duo. So I, I can kind of see go along with that. And I'm just looking up now. It says Condry returned to Continental in Alabama in the spring of 1989, and he became the uh, Continental Heavyweight Champion. So... That's where he kind of hung around till he retired in the early 1990s. So, not this is it for him on the national stage. Mm, kind of strange um, for Condry. I don't know if Lane is the better wrestler than Condry. Um, I mean, yeah, he, I think it's just the way that I think it's just the way that Cornette explains it. Did not get heat with either guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, I think uh, I mean. I think they were. I think they were the better wrestling team. I think, to me personally, I think they had uh, Eaton and Lane had better matches together than Eaton and Condry. Um, but yeah, as far as, as drawing money, and that's really the bottom line when it comes to wrestling, is uh, is uh, is definitely in favor of uh, Eaton and Condry, um, which is why I said I think, I, why I do believe that that Condry is the better heel, and that's really genuinely genuinely what draws the money. Uh, is whether or not you're a good heel, and of course, going up against a good baby babe. I, th I, th I mean, w when you say they have better ma matches, I think it's definitely the case that if you just look at their NWA uh, or Crockett output, um, probably the Lane version of the Midnights have given us the better matches. Um, but I think if you look overall, um, a lot of the Condry um, Eaton stuff from Mid South with the Rock and Roll Express especially. They have some really good matches with those guys. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know. I think if you look outside of NWA, the, the picture is a little um, is a little bit more complicated there. I think it's close. Um, and Lane definitely has flashier offense than uh, Condry. Um, but I think a lot, like, I, I, we, when we talked about this recently, I can't remember who it was, but they said that um, in the... Uh, Condry uh, Eaton version of the uh, Midnight's Condry was the brain and Eaton was the flash. Whereas with the Eaton Lane, Eaton has to be the brain and Lane is the flash. Um, and that Condry is a better brain than Eaton, and Eaton is probably better flash than Lane. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's just. I think uh, I think maybe you could say maybe you could maybe the, make the argument that 
Aiton and Lane had more exciting matches. Would you say that? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I'd agree with that. Would you agree, Chad? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's really tough to kind of, I mean, I think the great thing about the Midnight Express throughout their careers, they both had kind of two distinctive identities, uh, one with Condry and one with Lane, uh, and both of them sort of have pros and cons. So, I, I mean, I do definitely think that uh, the Lane and Eaton version is more flashier than uh, overall than the uh, Eaton Condry version. So it's it's kind of a different type of uh, match they were wrestling, like uh, probably more brawls in the Condry Eaton version. So speaking of the Midnight Express, uh, Bob Cardle is with them and uh, Jim Cornette. Uh, Cornette says that there's no limit to how low Paulie will stoop and says that uh, they prepared for Condry. So he's pretty pissed off uh, that they're getting this uh, unknown entity, Jack, uh, victory here. Corny says that maybe Condry is scared, or maybe he's hiding somewhere in the building. So I think this was a really nice try to cover up what the hell is, had happened here. Um, but it's still painfully obvious that something's gone wrong, I think. I mean, do, do you think anybody at home is buying th this idea that this is purely tactical? I, I would think not. No, I mean, because I mean, Condry's the guy who's uh, kind of drawing things on the heel side. I don't think anybody. Yeah, I mean, well, Condry. I mean, the feud is revolved around dangerously probably number one, Condry number two, and then Rose. You know, kind of pretty distant third. So yeah. So we go from this now to the match Midnight Express with Jim Cornette versus Randy Rose, poorly dangerously. And uh, Jack Victory. <laughs> um, Meltzer's got a very good line here saying that the. Uh, <laughs> he heard somebody say that the NWA has got 30 or uh, maybe 50 wrestlers and at least 10 or 12 of them are Jack Victory. <laughs> now, but who, in the, who back there do you think really thought that Jack Victory was uh, this guy who can, you can stick into any situation? Because we've seen this happen twice now. Why? Why is he their go-to man? No idea. Somebody must be high on him. I guess George Scott. But now, uh, Parv, is this your next match, or is the Butch Reed match versus Sting? I've got this. Oh my! On mine, uh, oh, Butch on. Reed and Sting came first. Um, Butch Reed and Sting. Yeah, the Russian assassin, uh, Michael Hayes, and he had Sting versus Butch Reed. Oh, yeah. Oh, d sorry, I, I, I skipped an entire page of my notes here. <laughs> so, yeah, all, all of that stuff happened a bit later with the Midnight Express. Uh, sorry, I've, I've uh, messed up a little bit here. Bob Coddle was with Sting, uh, who's wearing a white jacket and pink tights. He's excited. And now we get Sting and Butch Reed. Sorry, I, uh, good job you stopped me there. <laughs> um so yeah, it's Sting versus Butch Reed, um, and uh, we get the signature um, uh, introduction for Sting from Gary Michael Capetta, and I think that's one of, uh, he's really good at giving that introduction. Butch Reed is uh, managed by Hiro uh, Matsuta, who uh, I don't really understand. We, we've been asking what the hell the deal was with him, 
Any ideas, uh, Matt, on this? Do you have any insight of how? I feel the same way. I, I, I'm seeing him manage uh, Butch Reed, and I'm seeing him manage Ric Flair. I, I just don't understand what's going on. Yeah. Isn't he, isn't he also managing Barry Windham at this point? Yep. Yep. Yeah, there's yeah. really kind of no rhyme or reason on how he sort of acquired the stable he did. I mean, I can understand the horseman that J.J. sold him the rights uh, to the horseman wrestlers, but how he just randomly pops up here with Butch Reed, there, uh, at least from what we've been able to gather, there's been no explanation of that. So it's kind of yeah. odd. I mean, you, could, you do kind of have a version of the four horsemen here. You've got um, Hiro Matsuta, Ric Flair, Barry Windham, Butch Reed, and the Blackmailer. Cool. <laughs> so there's your four horsemen there. Read the blackmailer, Flair. And please, uh, please do not say <laughs> the blackmailer in the sentence with the four horsemen again. Is he also Jack Victory? Yes, yes he is. Yes. It is. Awful. That's what I thought. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, Reed draws Sting to start and uh, gets an atomic drop uh, for his trouble. Ross talks about Sting's leaping ability, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, it's even Stevens here until Sting gets an arm drag and uh, a drop kick as Reed bails. Ross compares Sting's movement to to juniors, uh, to junior wrestlers, uh, which I thought was an interesting talking point. Um, I tried to talk before about what Sting innovated, if he actually uh, made an impact, and I was trying to say that he has had an impact on guys like, uh, I don't know, Chris Jericho is uh, one of the examples I had. Um, and Ross is basically trying to put over this idea that Sting is like the first big man who moves like this. What do we think of this claim? That uh, Sting is basically the first big guy to move like a little guy. Um, I mean, I think it's a nice kind of way to, to if you want to look at Sting, but... I mean, I would say, obviously, Sting is bulkier than, like, Flair or Steamboat, but, I mean, I don't think either one of those guys are necessarily smaller guys, and they were moving around, working as, as fast a pace, coming off the top rope, too, so. so kinda, I mean, it's nice that he said that, and that was kind of a good way to build him, but I don't know if it was necessarily true. Any thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I think it's a good way to put him over. Um, but like Chad said, there's guys like uh, Steamboat and uh, even like Jimmy Snuka. I mean, those guys move, and they're very big guys. I mean, they're probably not six five or anything like that. But yeah, they're very uh, they're very very big guys for their their, their uh, height and everything. And so, I don't I don't, uh, I don't necessarily think that's that's true. But like like you say, it's, he's just trying to put him over. This is one of those unusual things where guys talk about Sting as if he's the same kind of build as Lex Luger or even like Warrior or Hogan or someone like like They talk about him as if he's that size of wrestler. And to me, he looks, as you guys said, in the same kind of bracket as Flair and Steamboat. Um, it's, it's weird that. I, I never quite understood why Sting has always talked about like like he's a big man. Um, okay. We get a headlock by Sting, um, and uh, five minutes have gone. Backslide by Sting gets two. Uh, retakes over on uh, offense, but he gets cut off uh, by Sting, who goes to a wrist lock. Uh, we get more 
arm work now. So Sting has uh, got arm work into his uh, game plan. Um, we get a shotgun by Reed. Second rope, double axe handle. Uh, ten minutes have gone. Hiro Matsuta chokes Sting on the bottom rope. Um, Ross and Magnum TA talk about those Orientals. Uh, we get a chin lock from Reed. Sting comes back with a slam, but catches a pair of knees, going for a splash from the top. We get a suplex from Sting, a neck breaker from Reed. Uh, and then he goes to a chin lock, but Sting hits a kind of modified version of a stunner. And uh, he gets a clothesline, a backdrop, a very high elbow. Uh, Reed goes to the eyes, uh, gets a sunset flip. That's Sting who goes for a sunset flip, but Reed blocks it. Uh, he then sits down on Sting, goes for a pin, um, he, grabbing the ropes. Teddy Long spots it and uh, kind of kicks his hand away, and um, Sting steals the win. Post-match, they brawl. Chad, thoughts on this one? Um, I, I, I thought this was pretty good. Uh, it went 20 minutes, so it went too long. But, uh... But the work, the work was not bad. Uh, Ross was insanely annoying on commentary for this match. We got a lot of uh, racist comments with him talking about a soup on right from Butch Reed. We also got a kind of jab at the Ultimate Warrior where he talked about Sting's former tag partner and how Sting has far surpassed him and wrestling ability and all that. Uh, so he was annoying here. Uh, and I thought Reed himself kind of relied too much on the chin lock mm. and didn't do a whole lot for his control segment. But uh, overall, this kept my attention pretty well, and I thought it was a good match. I mean, pretty good match. Not great or nothing, but it, it served its purpose. Matt? Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't too bad. Um, I think I agree with Chad. It was a little long. Uh, I also felt like it was kind of a step down for Sting. I mean, he'd been over the last year. He had been competing, you know, as you've gone through your uh, on your podcast. He's been battling over the trying to get the world title. He's been trying to get the U.S. title, the tag titles, and now he's you know in the second match against a guy who's you know kind of new to the in, to the NWA at this point, especially the fan of uh, I felt it was kind of a step down for. Him. No, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's strange that, isn't it, that Sting is in this uh, match now. That's a good point. I, I also think it's a little bit strange from a booking point of view that Butch Reed has just entered here and he's getting pinned by Sting. Um, doesn't that kind of kill Reed's push dead? Yeah, I don't I don't remember him really even doing anything in 1989 outside of uh, joining Doom you know, later in the year. Yes, it's, uh, I mean... If this was being booked WWF style, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what would have happened in 1989. Butch Reed would have had a match with um, Jimmy Snooker at this point in the card and beaten him in about six minutes. That's typically what they do with a guy who they were kind of pushing and they didn't have any storylines for. They'd have a match with uh, Jimmy Snooker. <laughs> um, I don't really know what uh, what you could have done with Sting at this point. Um, he's not in the world title picture. He's not in the US title picture. Yeah, I don't really know what you could have done with him differently, but I feel like surely there was somebody they could have put with him that wasn't Butch Reed. And that's not really a, a knock on Butch Reed. I mean, I, I used to like him uh, 
when he worked uh, Florida. He worked Florida really, uh, really well, and he worked in, uh, of course, mid south. I mean, I, I guess one of the things they could do is transition from uh, Rick Steiner versus the Varsity Club to Sting versus the Varsity Club. Um, although that, that Varsity Club Rick Steiner feud is pretty hot, so I don't know. Yeah. Kind of weird point in Sting's career. This he's not kind of uh, just kind of floating around, not doing a lot. Yes, it is. So now we have that uh, that couple of uh, Midnight Express interviews, uh, and um, we we've already talked about that. Um, and we're going to go from there to the Midnight Express match. Um, Rose poorly, dangerously, and Jack victory. Uh, on commentary, they're talking a lot about how um, Victory is younger, bigger, and stronger than Dennis Condry. Um, which I thought, I mean, you know, they did a reasonably good cover-up job, I think. Um, you know, as a... They dealt with it as best that they could, I think. Um, other than putting Jack Victory in that spot. I'm sure they could have found a better guy. You know what's Brad Armstrong doing at this point? For example, I I don't know. They could have found they could have found somebody on the roster to stick in there. I mean, if Iron Sheik was around, I think it would have made a bigger impact to put Iron Sheik in there. I, I don't know what your thoughts are, Chad. Uh, I, I don't know about that. Victory kind of works. I mean, from a from a stature standpoint. Everything they said as far as him being bigger, younger, stronger. I mean, that at least was something they could say, and it'd be true, so. It, it just feels like a very low-impact sub. I mean, I mean, the only guy that I could think of, and again, I'd come to interested if he was injured around this time, but you could have had Eddie Gilbert. I mean, I don't know if he was injured, but you could have had Eddie Gilbert turn and been a partner, and that actually could have been a kind of interesting uh, pull for the Midnights around this time. Yeah, that's uh, true. He's kind of the only other guy that I would plug in there. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking about impact, you know, something that's really going to make Jim Cornette scared. You know, to turn JYD heel. I think they were just trying to uh, kind of get this feud out of the way and just end it as quickly as, and as uh, try to forget about it, I think, is really what they were trying to do because. Like you said, who else could they really put in that role besides just a, a journeyman wrestler? What, what, I, what I'm saying, put JY, uh, put right, JYD strong, in there. He's a he's a baby face. He would never he would never intimidate Jim Cornette. I don't think. Um, <laughs> Eddie Gilbert was a face. He was a I think he was teaming with Rick Steiner at the time against the varsity club. Yeah, he was definitely a face. So he had to been turned. So that's why I mean, honestly, like. Obviously, I've been a terrible fan of Victory, but I mean, this was kind of the climax match here, so I, I don't. I mean, I don't know if it was quite necessary for them to have a sudden big event happen, where like with JYD or anybody <laughs> like that. <laughs> I, 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 the more I think about it, the more I think it should have been Butch Reed. Put 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 Reed in that spot. I think he I think he would have made people genuinely more concerned. You know, I I, I can understand. Um, I, I don't know. Let, 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 let's move on. My feeling is that Jack Victory shows a lack of imagination on the on the Booker's part here. Um, we get Rose and Lane uh, to start off, off with here, and uh, surprisingly, Rose gets the better of it until he slammed from the top. Victory comes in. He does a drop toe hold. Um, sorry, uh, 
the Midnights drop to toehold him, and we get triple elbows from uh, Cornette and the Midnights, which look pretty cool. Um, the Midnights uh, are on top, and um, Cornette gets a little jab in. Paulie accidentally punches Rose, um, and they kind of have a little tense uh, moment there. The heels are generally on top um, for the next uh, segment, and uh, Paulie dangerously tags in, and he gets some very cheap offense in, and then tags Rose uh, back in. Rose is really carrying the kind of work end of things for the heels here. Um, he's basically wrestling three guys on his own uh, for a lot of this. Cornette is uh, slammed by Rose, and uh, Paulie sneaks in uh, to work him over. We get a two count. <laughs> we get a funny little stretch sequence with um, Paulie working over Jim Cornette. <laughs> Cornette makes a comeback, um, <laughs> but uh, Paulie makes it to Jack Victory. Eaton comes in and he bulldogs him. I'm just going to say that Jim Cornette was an awesome face up, face in peril there for, for about five minutes. Um, Rose uh, slams Lane and it's quite a nice slam. We get a clothesline. Uh, we get some sort of chant about Paulie um, from the crowd. There's a slide a side slam uh, by Rose. Lane reverses a pile driver. Uh, Victory comes in uh, with a back suplex. Lane gets a hot tag to Eaton, um, who gets a top rope drop kick. He forces Victory to tag Paul E. Uh, Corny comes in. Uh, the crowd is literally going nuts um, as uh, we get this kind of fired up Jim Cornette. All six men come in now. Uh, Rose misses a knee from the top, uh, which gets a two count. Uh, we get a kind of double team. It's like a double backdrop maneuver. I'm not sure how to call it. Um, on Rose. Lane gets the pin on Rose, who must now leave the NWA. Any thoughts on this one, Matt? I thought it was I thought it was great. I mean, I, I like the match. Um, um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was I thought it was fine. I uh, didn't ha- didn't have any problems with it. It was a uh, it was a uh, it was fine with me. Chad. <clears throat> yeah, I thought this was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, just a really fun match. They used a lot of uh, kind of stuff you don't see a lot. I thought Cornette was really smart in this match, kind of one, uh, not being in for too long uh, and most of the time, two, really building up to him and Paulie's interactions with each other, and three, you know, him kind of getting caught to create heat. They had a couple of kind of miniature heat segments in this match, and uh, each one worked really well. Randy Rose looked the best by far. We've seen him look, uh, and and the footage that we've seen on these two big shows, and also the footage I saw on YouTube of this whole feud. Uh, I thought Randy Rose looked his best right here on his last night. And I will give Victory credit that what he did was not great, uh, but it was serviceable. And he wasn't in the match for very long. So he kind of got in, did the stuff that he could perform competently, and then got out quickly. So I, I really thought this was not a not a great match, but a, a lot of fun and worth seeing. You know, I, I was down on uh, Randy Rose before, um, but I have to say, on any other show, if this was any other show, um, he'd be an MVP contender tonight, because I thought he was pretty good. Uh, in this match, really carried uh, 
things on his end of the team. And um, he, yeah, his offense looked good. His bumping was good. And uh, yeah, I don't know what it is about Randy Rose. He he feels very small time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? He feels like a small time wrestler. I mean, I think he feels very territorial type person. So he'd kind of be kind of in the continental territories or something like that. He'd sort of be a middle card guy. I can see that. Yeah, um, but he, I mean, fair play to him. He, uh, he, he had a good, you know, they got his money's worth out of him. Uh, yeah, tonight. I mean, to me, this is the best I've ever seen him. I mean, and uh, I did watch, I mean, he was pretty good throughout the feud, but I think he definitely stepped it up another notch in this match, so. Yeah, and I mean, I did also kind of feel for him, because if you think about the, you know, if you think about him, Let's be honest, he was never a big star, Randy Rose, and it just so happens that he had this Midnight Express gimmick before, um, you know, another team uh, took on, you know, the Midnight Express name and happened to make a big time with it. Um, and it just so happens he's getting this run based on that. He, he, I mean, it's kind of lucky on his part, in, in a way, do you know what I mean? Um, so, so for Condry to kind of... Um, you know, cause a bit of a problem on the big blow-off matches is, is a little, un, you know, is a little bit unfair. And despite all of that, Rose still kind of worked his ass off. So I, I respect him for that. Also, I read somewhere that he's not actually off here. He kind of makes a comeback in a couple of weeks. Is that right? Like, as like a, as like a, if, if he does, I don't remember him. But I, I think he comes back as like a jobber or something. Is that right, Matt? Did you have any idea, Matt? I will check on that for you. Uh, yeah, I, I like I like Randy Rose. Uh, he kind of kind of fit that Midnight Express mold. I thought he could brawl, he could fly, uh, he could do anything on the mat. I I thought he was great, especially in this match. Um, just before we move on, uh, there is we got to see two different managers uh, in the ring here for quite a while. Who would you say the better worker is, <laughs> Cornette or Paulie? I mean, I think Cornette, when he does work, he always does a uh, – he, he usually does a pretty good job. He doesn't try to be one of these managers that will completely dominate a wrestler. He knows that he's a manager, so he should look inferior uh, to the wrestler. And he always wears that real gaudy red <laughs> spandex uh, suit. So I, I think he does a real good job in knowing what his role is in the matches that he participates in. And uh, I thought he did good here. Paulie was fine too, but I, I think Cornette's probably one of the better wrestling managers we'll see. Yeah, I, 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 by the way, by the way uh, Randy Rose does stick around through the end of the year. He, uh, he jobs in uh, tag teams uh, a lot of times with Ranger Ross, of all people. And uh, he had a few matches with uh, Scott Steiner on television. Just different, just different uh, odd teams that you wouldn't expect him to be in. That's very unusual. I, th I think. They, yeah. I, th I think. That, I mean, if they were going to keep him around, the easier thing they could have done is given the victory the uh, pinfall here, because he's under the mask anyway. Nobody knows that uh, Russian assassin <laughs> two is him. Um. Okay. So th that kind of cheapens the loser leaves town gimmick, though, right? If the guy is just going to stay around. Well, that's wrestling for you. In, in fact, um, Meltzer mentions this as well. Uh, 
he he gave this match three and a quarter, by the way. How would you go? Uh, how would you? Do, is that about right? Three and a quarter. Yeah, that sounds about right for me. Probably three and a quarter. I may even bump it up a little bit to three and a half. I thought it was a lot of fun. And Matt, well, I, I guess yeah, that's that's where, I'm, that's where I'm at with it. About three, and a, I went three and a half with it. I, I thought, like I said, it was fun, a lot of fun to watch. And the the first two uh, matches, incidentally, just out, just for your information, a one and a half for the first match, the Hayes uh, match, and half a star for the Reed Sting match. Is that sound about right for you? I would never, I mean, I, I think the Reed Sting match, even though it was long, was definitely better than the first match. I'd probably go about two stars on that match, on the Sting versus Reed. And, I mean, it'd be probably a star on the opener. That's just for Hayes, kind of keeping the crowd into it. You, you about the same up? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, first match on the turn, you only have about half of it. So I went with a star with it, and uh, I agree with uh, with Chad on Sting and Reed. I went two stars with it. You got uh, almost, you got over 16 minutes with of uh, Sting and Reed, so I, I figured that was enough, well, more than enough to uh, to rate it. So Bob Connell's with uh, Ric Flair now, uh, who calls himself the Golden Stallion. He's ready, and uh, I'm pretty pumped. I think Flair is just really good on the mic. Um, then we get a, uh, an interview with Bob Coddle and the Steiner brothers, both Steiners. Scott is here for his uh, our first look at him. And he tells us that um, at one time, <laughs> Rick Steiner was normal, but he, he's never been the same since uh, the accident. <laughs> um, and uh, Bob Coddle tells us that he doesn't have an Alex to talk to. <laughs> so our first look at Scott Steiner. Uh, any thoughts about this little segment? Um, I mean, I guess we, we finally get the debut of Scott, and he didn't do a whole lot here or on this show, but kind of nice to see him in as he'll be a mainstay uh, pretty much through the end of the promotion besides a little leave of absence that they have when they go to the WWF. So we'll be seeing a lot of him for the next 12 years or so. Yeah. Matt, any, any thoughts on this? As a as a big Steiner Brothers fan, yeah, I was uh, I was very very happy to see him. So this is our next match now. It's Mike Rotunda versus uh, Rick Steiner uh, in a, in a, I'd say a pretty hot TV title feud. They they you know they built this reasonably well. Um, we get a uh, side headlock uh, takeover to start, uh, then a fireman carry takeover from Rotunda, which uh, Steiner answers with one of his own. Uh, we get a waist lock takedown by Rotunda, European uppercuts by Rotunda, uh, Ross name checks uh, Dory Funk Jr. at this point. Um, we get an arm drag and a clothesline by Steiner, headlock. Uh, Ross talks about Rotunda's athletic background from the ages of 8 to 13, <laughs> um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, we get an abdominal stretch by Rotunda, um, which is reversed. Uh, Rotunda gets on Steiner's back in a kind of amateur wrestling uh, position. Um, we get a slam by Rick, um, but uh, he misses a splash from the top. He, uh, the action goes outside. We get a big scoop power slam by Rick Steiner. Um, and then he breaks uh, the pin to bark like a dog. And Kevin Sullivan is here, 
and says that Steiner, that's uh, that's a beautiful dog you've got back in the locker room. Steiner's very distressed now. Uh, we get back suplex by Rotunda, uh, but then he misses a drop kick. Five minutes remain. We get a sleeper by uh, Rick, and Rotunda is out cold, but uh, they fall kind of back, and Steiner ends up pinning himself because Rotunda's on top of him and both his shoulders are down, and he loses the title. What a strange finish. So, um, Chad, your thoughts on this? Uh, well, as on PWO, uh, the posting <laughs> today, I did not like this very much at all. Um, and part of giving your opinion, I'll probably go back and watch it because we're not that usually uh, wide apart <laughs> on most of the matches. But I thought, uh, I, I mean, I thought the beginning was kind of cool, actually, where they traded some wrestling amateur moves and then Rotunda threw the first punch to gain the advantage. I kind of like that, how they sort of had a sportsman start and then Rotunda mixed it in with the punching. But then uh, we get a lot of barking from Steiner uh, with Rotunda uh, going to the outside to take a breather. And then we get an abdominal stretch from Rotunda using the ropes for leverage. Still kind of just basic heel 101 work. A botched monkey flip from Steiner. Uh, he misses a big splash. And I just, again, I just don't see any focus where Rotunda had a long sequence. But I don't really know what he was trying to kind of accomplish with that. And then uh, you have the deal with Sullivan yapping on the microphone and the finish, which... Uh, I mean, okay, Steiner is presented as kind of a, a dumber wrestler, but this really made him look really stupid, so I, I don't really like the finish either. So I did not like this match very much. Matt, where do you stand on this one? Um, I, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was okay. I'm, I'm like you. I don't really care for the finish. Um, I, I, I never care for the that kind of finish whenever they just fall on someone and, and uh, get their shoulders counted like that while, while they have a hold on. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, Rotunda's offense really is kind of all over the place. You just kind of you know, grab a abdominal stretch, cheat with it, and grab a chin lock and cheat with it. and That's pretty much, you, you've pretty much seen his whole moveset. Um, yeah, it, it was okay. I, I think I gave it uh, two and three quarters. It it was. It wasn't. It wasn't too. Uh, wasn't as good as the uh, the Starcade match. Hmm. So you. you did, how many stars did you give it? Two. Two and three quarters is what I went with. Two and three quarters. Meltzer went one and a half. So he's closer to Chad's view. Now me and Meltzer are lining up on this show. <laughs> My. I said on PWO earlier that I think it might be Rotunda's career match. This. Um. And now I guess I have to back that up. Um, I I thought that with this match, more than most matches that we see, every little th there was a lot of jockeying for position, and it seemed like every little thing counted. Um, and they were also telling this story about these two guys being from like an amateur background, and they both had to work for every move. Um, and we had kind of had a lot of counter wrestling. Um, and it's kind of, you know, I thought they did that stuff pretty well. And then uh, Rotunda gets frustrated and he has to go to, um, you know, the uppercuts. And I, I thought he was reasonably vicious with his 
uh, with his uppercuts and things. I thought there was quite a bit of intensity to to what he was doing. Um, I you you I mean you said his offense is unfocused, and by that I guess you mean that it's not leading anywhere. He's not working on one body part, or he's not really telling a coherent story. Um, he's just doing a bunch of his stuff, right? That would be your right. Yeah, I mean, I think he just the way he switches and he kind of does these. I just think that Rotunda a lot of time relies on just these kind of basic uh, heel kind of sequences as far as him holding on to the rope and stuff like mm-hmm. that and with an arm bar and an abdominal stretch. And I, I just don't see kind of what he's trying to accomplish. Like, what is his end game with what he does during his control segments? Yeah, I mean, I could e- I can even accept that as a criticism um, of Rotunda in this match, but I think that the, I mean that is a valid criticism. But the match does have other merits, is what I'd say. Um, that they, I mean, I think that Rick Steiner and uh, Rotunda have quite good chemistry, and I like. Would you agree with that? Do you think they've got? Do you think they work well together? I mean, I, I don't really think so. I haven't liked either of their matches. I mean, I, I mean, I think there's a. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, a lot of that deals with my thoughts on Rotunda as a worker, and also the fact that you know Steiner kind of being this dumb dumb. I mean, sure. I mean, in this case, you saw where Rotunda sort of outsmarted Steiner, but. From a from a logic standpoint, I don't know how that does anybody any favors because they kind of want Steiner to be sympathetic. But I mean, here with the finish, he's just an idiot. So I don't understand how you can really sympathize with him. I, I mean, the beginning of this match I thought was pretty clever with the wrestling and uh, and then Rotunda kind of resorting to kind of bully brawling to gain the advantage. So I thought if they could have kept doing that, where Steiner wanted to out-wrestle Rotunda to show that, you know, Michigan wrestling was uh, better than Syracuse wrestling and Rotunda constantly had to keep using shortcuts, I thought that would have been a good story, but they just didn't follow through with that throughout the match. Mm. Um, and, and I guess the other, well, I've said it's his career match. I guess the other question is, when is Rotunda better than this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I actually thought he might have been better in uh, the Clash 5 match. I know we got some comments from Shu that said that that was because he was actually stepping the Fantastic, so that might have been why his stuff looked a little better than normal. But uh, it's really tough, and quite honestly, it's not something I'm willing to invest the time to evaluate exactly when uh, Rotunda's peak was, because he's just such a bland uh, worker, in my opinion. Matt D did send me, uh, for some reason, he sent me a PM saying, uh, watch this, and it was a, uh, <laughs> it was a Rotunda versus um, uh, Ronnie Garvin match from a couple of weeks before this. Uh, in fact, it was from before Garvin's heel turn, because JJ... Uh- did- J.J. Dillon was on commentary, he, and he was te- teasing the turn, uh, which was interesting. Um, and I thought that was a decent match, but I, for some reason I thought something really clicked between uh, Rick Steiner and Tunder here, but obviously you disagree. 
Um, Matt, what are your thoughts on Rotunda uh, as a worker in general? Uh, well, like Chad said, he relies a lot more on just hill tactics than actually you know, telling a good story, I think. Um, what, did, what did you guys think? I, I'm trying to remember. What did you guys think of the, uh, the match with Brad Armstrong back at the, uh, cla the third clash? Oh, God. <laughs> Do you remember that one? I uh, no. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, know, I think for for both me and Parv, we sort of thought that one kind of went too long and didn't really uh, didn't really develop into much of anything. But we're also pretty low on Armstrong, so that doesn't oh, help really? either. Yeah, we're not very high on Brad Armstrong. So he had a uh, he had a pretty good match uh, with Sting on uh, World Championship Wrestling. Couple weeks after this pay per view is on uh, April Fools, where uh, Sting won the the TV title. That was pretty good. I don't know if you've seen that one or not. I've not. No, that 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 sounds kind of interesting, actually. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't mind. Uh, I wouldn't mind checking that out, especially just to see what else Sting was up to at this point as well. You, you said Sting, right? Yeah, it was when Sting. Yeah, Sting won the uh, TV belt from Rotunda. Um. Yeah. One of the little talking points that uh, we've had is that um, I've been claiming that Rotunda's Peak was the IRS character. Would you take IRS over the Varsity Club uh, jock? Matt? Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's pretty much the same style, so... Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just a matter of preference whether you like... The, IRS character or not? I, I don't. I don't really. I don't really feel. You know. I don't feel like I love the Rotunda character more than the IRS character, or vice versa. Right. Okay. I, I. I. I mean, I do think there's there's a slight difference in his work in that he's not allowed to do um, ten minute abdominal stretches in the WF. Like he, he's just not allowed to do that. Um, the amount of boring mat work that he does. I mean, obviously he's rotunda, so he still does it, but not to yeah. the, not to the same extent here, where he's just eating up, you know, seven minutes of a match sitting in a chin lock. Right. Um. So Bob Coddle now is with the uh, Row Warriors. Uh, Paul Ellering once again stands at the back and doesn't say too much. Um, he might as well have not been there. He, I mean, he does, he does say a bit more during this interview, but really, if he hadn't been there, I don't think anybody would have noticed. Um. Coddle also has an interview with Barry Windham, who's in a big cowboy hat. Uh, he's with uh, Hiro Matsuta, who also, uh, it must be noted, says nothing during these interview segments. Um, Windham has some unresolved issues with uh, Lex Luger, and uh, he cuts an okay promo here. Um, I don't think Windham is particularly noted for his mic work, is he? Uh, I mean, no. I think, uh, I think on the spectrum of Horseman, he's certainly below Flair, certainly below Arn. I mean, I've always thought of Wyndham as kind of a solid mic worker, but uh, nothing much more than that. So our next match is Luger versus Barry Wyndham for the US title. Uh, Wyndham is our champion at this point. Uh, we get back suplex by Wyndham, which is no-sold right at the start of the match. Uh, Gorilla press slam by Luger. Um, Wyndham bails. We get a big scoop power slam by Luger, um, but then he misses a move from the top. 
uh, Wyndham teases the claw, uh, but then he ends up ramming his claw hand into the ring post, uh, which injures his hand uh, fairly early on in this match. Despite that, he puts the claw on anyway, um, but it's not very effective. Um, and uh, Jim Ross ominously mentions the Illinois Commission here, <laughs> which I thought was some quite nice continuity from Jim Ross. Uh, he mentions that Tommy Young is the five-time uh, referee of the year, so I don't know if he's had one of his awards taken away from him. That's what I thought. Some might have been revoked. I made the same <laughs> note because every time uh, he mentions that now, I'm going to make a note of it because <laughs> it's driving me crazy. It, it, Matt, you got any inside info on uh, what this ref of the year thing that Ross kept on going I'm on? Sh- I'm sure it's one of those things where they're like, well, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember. Is he five time or six time? I don't know. This is just say five or six. It'll be pretty close to the truth. No, it's one of those. Do you ever see that SpongeBob SquarePants where uh, he's uh, been the employee of the month for like the past five years or something? <laughs> SpongeBob. Yeah. Has, it's the the referee of the year must be like that. It's just Tommy Young, like going back to the. Yeah, yeah he's just automatically the referee of the year. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think like Teddy Long and uh, Randy Pee Wee Anderson are like? Every single year they go and have a look, and it's uh, it's Tommy Young yet again. Um, yeah. <laughs> we get a uh, we get um, uh, Wyndham basically sets up for a superplex, um, but hits his uh, fist punching a uh, Luger, and then he hits the superplex anyway. But they were up there for a very long time. It seemed like they were up there for like a minute or something before he hits the superplex, which was uh, just odd because Luger just looked like he was waiting for the superplex to happen. We get a belly to belly, uh, belly to back suplex, uh, which gets um, a three count out of nowhere. Um, so what happens here is I, I think it's Wyndham who hits the belly to uh, back suplex. No, uh, yeah, Wyndham hits the belly to back suplex, but his uh, shoulders are down, so Luger gets a kind of pin out of nowhere. Um, so we get a new U.S. champion. Wyndham goes nuts and uh, gives uh, Luger a nasty-looking pile driver. But this is uh, quickly becoming the George Scott finish now. Uh, what do we think of this one? I'll go to you first, Matt. Um, I just don't like the... I, I mean, I guess the match was okay. I just don't care for that finish. It's very old school. You've seen it a lot in the 70s and 60s, I think. Uh, it's just one of those finishes where you, you're almost like you out-wrestle yourself. and They just did a similar finish like that and. Steiner Tunda match. I just didn't. I thought they could have been a little more creative with it. I guess it was just a it was just a way to get uh, Wyndham out of the NWA since he's heading back to the WWF uh, without uh, you know him losing way too much heat. It kind of like like it says makes it look like he beat himself in other words. Your your thoughts on this one, Chad? Yeah, I kind of I kind of agree with that. Um, I thought that. Uh, I mean, kind of surprisingly, they made Wyndham look pretty strong here, considering he was on his way out. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know whether the deal with his hand was kind of legit or not. I don't, I don't know if Meltzer mentions anything because it did look like it was swelling and all that, and he was certainly, if it wasn't, he was selling it real well. I thought. Um, so I, I did enjoy that because that's kind of something that we hadn't seen before with Wyndham is he's kind of, they kind of put over the claw as his big finisher. We've never seen anybody kind of working over his hand or him having trouble with his hand. 
So I like that aspect of it, and I also thought it was a pretty good way to keep Luger kind of in the upper mid-card and relevant after the Flair feud uh, by giving him the U.S. title, which he really uh, kind of solidifies himself as the U.S. champion for the next probably couple of years kind of with winning this. So I, I liked the match pretty good. I didn't think it was great, but uh, and the finish was kind of silly and that Luger raises his arm at the very end to get the pinfall so that didn't make him look great but uh overall not a bad match at all I didn't think um Meltzer does have a little bit of uh stuff on the uh arm injury on the wrist he says uh, I believe on TV they were trying to sell it as a broken wrist in reality this is the injury they're using to set up the fact that Wyndham is having surgery on his hand in a few weeks and will probably come back wearing a cast Wyndham still uh, used the hand for punching while selling it, um, almost like a baby face, and a substantial portion of the crowd was behind Wyndham, um, even though Luger got his face props and uh, when he made his short comebacks. Um, Meltzer goes three and three quarters on this match. Ooh, now that, that does seem way too high. Um, I, know, I know Matt has this ranked at two and a half. I'd probably kind of maybe split the difference and be kind of in the two and three quarter three star range for me yeah I'm about the same about three stars I think would be fair for this um, I, I did think that maybe Luger um, looked a little bit weak in this match compared to what we've seen him he didn't really get a lot in well especially for somebody that I mean I would assume by this time they knew was leaving the promotion I mean Wyndham leaves pretty quickly after this this is the last show we'll see him on uh, but I mean he's only with the WWF for around a year so we won't kind of go long on his retrospective yet because he's coming right back but uh, but yeah so with him coming out they still kind of made him look pretty dominant throughout this match and actually kind of a little resilient and heroic keeping on using the hand uh, after he heard it and I think it would have been fine, uh, you know, Wyndham uh, working as strong as he did, looking as strong as he did in the match. If Luger had a better finish, at least then it would have looked like, you know, Luger really beat somebody good. When he really took it to him in the match, you would think they would have had a better finish. It would have uh, really made Luger look uh, even better than Wyndham did in the match, if you think about it. This is obviously another George Scott thing, right? I mean, his two big things, arm work and this strange finish of the guy beating himself. I'm not sure Like, I'm not sure if it works. We've seen it twice, and both times, I, I don't know what the message is. I don't really know what the takeaway is. I mean, uh, we got two situations where a guy wins a title not looking his best. I mean, Rotunda's won the TV title asleep. And now Luger's kind of fluked this mm-hmm. title. I don't really, I don't, I don't really like it as a finish, to be honest. Not, not for yeah, ti- this is a really old school finish. I think it's incredibly outdated. I, I think it's a good. It may be a good finish for like a uh, Flair retaining the title, like in a in a kind of spawny manner or something, where you want to keep the babyface strong. But but for a title switch, it's a very strange, very strange. Um, Anyway, uh, let's, uh, let's, just before we move on, actually, um, Chad, you and I talked about how the jury might be out a little bit on, on Wyndham, how we haven't really seen, you know, anything too great from him. He's now leaving for a while, 
I mean, what's your kind of judgment on him at this point? I mean, I think he's a good worker. Um, I mean, I think in some way he's gotten kind of an unfair shake by what we've seen uh, him in. I mean, and sometimes like uh, the Clash 3 match with Sting, for example, like as far as a match itself, I would not rank that match very high because I thought Sting was pretty bad in it. But I thought Wyndham's performance himself was pretty uh, was good in that match. He really kind of reined in Sting and carried him well. So he, he's kind of he's kind of been a little hit and miss. I mean, I certainly don't think he's one of the best workers in the world right now, or mm. what we've seen. I would, but I would still say he's been a very good worker. Yeah, I, I'd I'd agree that he's been good, um, but I'm. I think the problem with Wyndham is that he he's talked about as kind of like an all-time great, isn't he? Or, you know, as being somebody who was one of the best in the world. Um, and compared to that kind of, you know, I think he falls short of that. Um, I, I, I mean, I would just say that I think sometimes he, I mean, I think a lot of people would kind of lump him in to the kind of Tully Blanchard, uh, Arn Anderson, that type of bracket, and compare him favorably with them, or you know, have them neck and neck. Yeah. And of what we've seen right now, I would have both of them ahead of uh, Wendell. He's easily, especially Tully, um, because Tully's given given us some of the best matches we've seen. And I mean, I, people talk about the matches with Flair, don't they? In '87, I don't think I was high as high on them as as everybody else seems to be. Um, that, that there's something I'm not seeing there. We, we didn't see all of them, did we, Chad? Uh, we well, yeah, we saw. Um, we actually only saw the Crockett Cup match. Uh, they have kind of three famous matches. One's the Battle of the Belts two match in 1986, uh, which last time I watched was a great match. And then they have the worldwide uh, draw in January 1987. Yeah, uh, and in the Crockett Cup match we did watch was clipped, and I did go back. This is going to be kind of going back to a long time ago, but I did go back and watch the unedited version of that, uh, which I had on DVD, and I would say that raised that match a uh, a pretty good bit. Not, I mean, I wouldn't put it up there with like the uh, Tully Magnum I Quit match or anything. But whereas before I'd kind of be in the four, four and a quarter star range for the Crockett Cup match, uh, watching it complete, it gets more towards the four and a half star, uh, maybe four and three quarter range for me. No, Matt, you, you've seen all of those matches too. Um, how are you with the kind of, uh, with Wyndham's uh, initial run here? Um, to this point, I think he's one of those guys that, uh, he wrestles really well with Ric Flair. He has great matches with him. And then you see him in other matches, and they're not quite to the to the level that you have uh, come to expect from, just from seeing the matches with Flair. Yeah, the, the ones with Flair, I've, I've always uh, enjoyed. Uh, I think it was one of the what that Chad was talking about was uh, January 87. It was on an episode of Worldwide. It took up the whole program, and it was it just blew me away. Um I think I, I think I did go five stars for that one. I've seen that one. I've seen the Crockett Cup, and I, I think I might have seen Battle of the Belts too. 
match, uh, but I've never done a, a review for it, I don't believe. But, uh, but yeah, he's uh, up to this point, I think he's one of those workers, kind of like Sting and Luger, who uh, outside of Ric Flair, uh, you, you don't really uh, you don't really get a bunch of classic matches with him. No. I, I, he does have that one really good tag match with uh, Arn and Tully as well. Is that him? I keep on getting, that is him, right? Yeah, that's him and Luger, actually, versus Arn and Tully from Clash 1. So, yeah, I mean, he has some great matches. Uh, really, some probably some of the best we've seen. But I, I do think sometimes he does have disappointing performances, like maybe the, the Starcade match with Bam Bam. I didn't like that match very much and thought it could have been a little more. Uh, this match wasn't given really a lot of time. I, I, Seemed like they kind of cut it short a little bit. Yeah, I, I think they definitely could have cut some time from the first couple of matches and gave this one a few minutes uh, to help it, and it would have been better. Uh, what we got here, I thought, was still a good match, but uh, he has had some kind of subpar, or disappointing performances as well. So a little bit inconsistent, maybe. We get a quick Mike Rotunda promo now. And we go into the Row Warriors versus the Varsity Club um, for the world uh, titles. Obviously, the Row Warriors are the champions. Um, the Varsity Club are Williams and Sullivan. Um, Animal and Sullivan start. Uh, we get quite a sloppy exchange from those two. Um, and there's a big LOD chant from the Chicago crowd here. Obviously, the Row Warriors are very over uh, in their hometown. Um, Animal gets a scoop uh, power slam on Williams, who bails. Uh, we get a military press by Williams on Hawk, uh, who comes back with a clothesline. Animal is our face in peril here, as uh, Sullivan and William, Williams take control. We get a pump handle slam by Williams, uh, followed by an arm drag. Uh, the heels keep working over Animal's arm. Uh, George Scott is obsessed with uh, arm work, I've written here. <laughs> um, Animal uh, sets Sullivan up for uh, a doomsday device, but Williams nails him and covers. Meanwhile, Hawk hits a clothesline from the top rope and covers Sullivan. Teddy Long counts three as Williams is pinning Animal and Hawk is pinning Sullivan. Animal clearly, clearly has his shoulder up uh, as well, I note. Um, so they count the three and the Royal Warriors win. Uh, again, I just think this is a weird finish. But Shao, what do you think of this? Um, I mean, the match wasn't much. It did look, again, like they were kind of rushing through things. Uh, Ross, of course, gives Williams a ton of uh, credit on commentary and really puts him over. Uh, you know, some decent kind of clobbering power wrestling action, but not a uh, not really a long story that got progressed like uh, Animal was worked over for just a couple minutes and then the hot tag came to halt. And the finish is another kind of misdirection finish, which is a real reoccurring theme on this show, where right as the count happens, you don't exactly know which way it's going to go. So it's kind of frustrating, and this is three matches in a row it's happened. Matt? Uh, this match actually kind of makes me wish Terry Gordy had been in the, uh, in the match instead of Kevin Sullivan. I think that would have been a fun match. But anyway, what we have here, uh it it was it was just a formula match. I, I didn't I didn't think too much of it. Um 
Yeah, the, and the finish with the misdirection, and that's pretty. It's pretty typical uh, Road Warriors finish if they don't get the Doomsday device. Hawk will just come off the top rope and and uh, hit whoever with the clothesline. It was fine. Um, I didn't really didn't really understand. Was this supposed to be a unification match, or what? Or was it just you know the tag team champions facing each other? Yeah, I, th- I I think that I think that um, it was just the U.S. champs were having a go at winning the world titles. I don't I don't think they lost the U.S. titles here. Right. Um, and uh, I guess you have to mention the Road Warriors turning face. Uh, you know, just after stabbing Dusty Rhodes in the eye with a spike. Uh, this I guess this is pretty much their first show. I guess they were on the Clash, but this is pretty much their first show. As being faces again, right? Yeah, I, I was going to ask. I mean, I, did they actually bother to turn here, or are the crowds just hearing? Are the crowds just kind of cheering them anyway? Like that, that it almost doesn't matter that they were heels for a while because people are gonna, just going to cheer them anyway. I don't know. Yeah, they're yeah. just kind of they're just kind of those wrestlers where you know people are just going to like them no matter what they're really doing. I, mean, I, I still think they kind of tried to make that de facto uh, turn at the clash. That was sort of their face turn, but uh, it was kind of weird too. So yeah, that's not really uh, a full turn, is it? They're still kind of um, obviously they, they, you know, they're being booked as faces again. But uh, I think just trying to do a dusty idea, I guess. Uh, he's no longer there. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I don't think they they uh, turn properly, and I think this is another like George Scott is uh, a weird Finnish guy. Is uh, what I'm taking away from this show. Sure. Um, because I mean, the, the weirdest thing for that is that um, it basically went the way that you'd expected to. I mean, it was clear that Sullivan was the legal man. It was clear that Animal had his shoulder up, and the Road Warriors just won. So. If everything's clear, why go to the? Why bother doing the finish? Good point. Yeah. Um, Coddle is with uh, a very bandaged up Lex Luger now, who's the new U.S. champ. Uh, we get quite a sincere interview for from him. We get a recap of Flair, uh, Flair Steamboat feud, uh, mainly uh, what we saw at Clash Five, um, and uh, now it's time. This is pro wrestling. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat versus Ric Flair uh, for the world title. Flair's with a hero Matsuta. Uh, Steamboat is with is with his wife and kid. <laughs> the uh, the girls that we saw from Clash Five get um get their own entrance here, uh, and they get a tr- some trumpets. Uh, so they get trumpets playing as they uh, walk in. Um, as this match is starting, uh, Ross mentions Gotch versus Hackenschmidt. Buddy Rogers versus Luthers, so he's really kind of already talking about this in historic terms, which I think is quite cool. Um, Steamboat gets the better of uh, the early going here. The chops ring out. You get a backdrop by Steamboat. Series of near falls. Ross, Ross talks about how Flair is the son of a um, uh, what is it? Is it a psychiatrist? A physician. A physician, yeah. yeah. Flair is the son of a physician, and Steamboat uh, is from a blue-collar background. The chops are really 
wild in this match. They're just going back and forth, and uh, you know these are some of the stiffest drops you'll see. Um, the pace is fast. We get a great headlock takeover by Steamer into a headlock. It's back and forth. Uh, Flair takes it outside and nails Steamboat uh, on the railings. We get a snapmare, a knee drop, butterfly suplex from Flair. Then he hits the crossbody, uh, which is surprising. But the momentum takes uh, Steamboat over for a two count. We get a figure four now. And the crowd is uh, massively behind Steamboat after, I think, being a little divided early on. But they seem to be rooting for Steamboat now. We get a big Steamboat chant. Tommy Young uh, breaks the figure four. Um, Steamer gets uh, posted outside. We get a big vertical suplex back in uh, from Flair for two. A back suplex gets two. A backbreaker gets two. Then we get a series of near falls. Um, the Dragon misses a big splash. Uh, he gives us a double underhook suplex. Uh, I don't know if that's different from the butterfly suplex, but uh, I'm saying it is. Uh, we get a backslide, which gets two. A uh, clothesline, crossbody from the top, um, but uh, basically they land on the referee, uh, so Tommy Young is out. Flair cradles uh, him, but Young is out, so he's not there to count. Steamer misses a flying body press. Flair goes for the figure four, but uh, Steamboat out of nowhere gets a small package. And that's it. One, two, three. Steamboat is the new world champion. Flair is absolutely distraught. And... Uh, Steamboat calls for his wife and kid to come and celebrate with him. Some fans uh, boo, I notice, but most of them are cheering. And, uh, well, this is one of the matches. Chad? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the matches that you really kind of hear about in the history of wrestling. I mean, this feud will have three straight on the next three shows, and this is just the first one. And, uh, I mean, I kind of go in because I've seen this match and I've seen all three of these matches I know countless times uh, so I kind of go in thinking I'll be let down or kind of disappointed and they they never seem to do it I, I mean I always uh, I've, I've liked this match a lot and this I mean this is a great great match it's kind of uh, a little bit of a weird match looking at it real uh kind of analytically this time because you don't have, uh, you know, a body part story really that goes into play. Uh, but the, I, I really love the way they kind of slowed everything down and then would come up into the sort of burst of action uh, every couple of minutes. You'd have kind of a little cool down period and then you'd have just, a burst of exchanges with them chopping and hitting each other or a high impact move. Uh, Flair, you know, hit his dive off the top. I thought Ross was fabulous throughout this match. Yeah. He brought up uh, the history of the NWA championship, the history of the NWA championship in Chicago. Uh, talked about how Flair had won the NWA title with the figure four before, given its incredibility. Uh, contrasted of uh, kind of the esteemed flair that was born with the silver spoon in his mouth versus the blue collar steamboat uh, really kind of played up that contrast in their personalities and in their upbringing. Uh, it's, it's just a great, 
great match. There's not much you can say. I mean, it's one of the best matches we've seen on these shows. I'm sure most people that have listened to this um, have seen it a lot. But uh, it's definitely a match to kind of revisit every once in a while, and it never disappoints. Matt? Uh, to me, it's it's the epitome of a wrestling main event. Um, if you, they just take you on just an incredible journey. I mean, they know exactly uh, where to, like like Chad said, where to slow things down and where to pick them back up again, and just take you on this incredible incredible ride of a of a match. Um, it's just 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 amazing. I can remember uh, the first time I saw it. Um, they showed it on, on WCW programming. I don't remember what show it was, but on the uh, the build to Spring Stampede '94, when they had, I, I guess it was their last, it be their last pay per view match. And I just remember being in awe of it, and uh, it, it's just, I feel still feel the same way. It's just it's just an amazing match, and I, I think personally, uh, I might like this one the best out of the three, just because of the chase of Ricky Steamboat. I'm a huge Ricky Steamboat fan. And uh, to see him, uh, you know, go into the to the chase of the uh, the NWA title and a belt that he had always eluded him, uh, you know, his whole career, even with all the matches with Flair and even back as far as Harley Race, um, it was it was a uh, satisfying as a fan to see him finally win the NWA World Title and then to be considered one of those elite guys, even with the short title reign that he had. He's to me, he's a uh, He's up there with the Terry Funk and, and Jack Briscoe and and all the other guys. He's he's uh it was it was a good thing to see him finally get his uh, due respect, even if it was just for a three month period. Yeah, I mean obviously this is a phenomenal uh, phenomenal match, and um, one of the things that we haven't mentioned uh, so far is that the crowd starts out this match basically a hundred percent cheering Flair. I mean, I don't think there's any uh, doubt about it. When they come out, um, they're they're rooting for Flair. We get a steamboat sucks chant uh, near the start. I don't know if you uh, you guys noticed that. Um, yeah, yeah. And then by the end of the match, they're basically. I mean, there's they're still a you know one or two guys in the crowd who who aren't on steamboat side, but pretty much he turns the entire crowd um, to be on his side. During the course of the match, I mean, how many times? Have you, how many times do we see that? Where that just shows you how great he is. I mean, he's if anybody can turn a, a town, a smart smart town like Chicago, and just make them as Steamboat fans over you know being typically Flair fans. That's uh, that's definitely an achievement in my opinion. Yeah, I, I that I think is uh is something that makes this match uh, special. I also like, uh, I also, I mean, I need to see all of these matches again, and like everybody else, I've seen them uh, numerous times, but I think I'm going to hold off on calling which one I think is the best, but th- this is a strong contender for me, because you have the face uh, going over, it's not too long, everything's super fast, um, the chops are just wild, I mean, they're just insane uh, during this, um, and I mean, Chad, you watched a lot of that All Japan stuff with me. Would you say that these chops are as stiff as anything we see in All Japan? I mean, they're... I, mean, <laughs> no, I don't know if they're 
up there with like a, a big Stan Hansen type just because he's such a, you know, a big, powerful, nearly blind dude that was just wailing away. But there, there's just a certain intensity in the exchanges in this match. Uh, you almost get sort of a beautiful melding of both scientific wrestling and also a, a brawl with with this match. You get some great uh, kind of counter-wrestling, uh, some high-impact moves. It's just really a kind of mixture of all the styles that you can see, and each one's represented well here. They all kind of blend in together organically, uh, and the exchanges are certainly stiff and intense and fast and furious and really... Uh, engaging to watch. I mean, this match goes 23 minutes, and it, it flies by. I mean, it just flies by. And that's that's why I feel like it's the epitome of a wrestling event. Uh, it's exactly what, to, I mean, everything that Chad just said is why I feel like it's the, it's one of the one of the all-time great main event, wrestling main events of any pay-per-view. One of the, one, Chad, you said one thing that interested me, though, which is that it doesn't really have a story. Can you say more on that? Well, but by that I meant that it doesn't have uh, like a prolonged body part selling type story. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely think there's a theme throughout the match, but there's not, you know, Flair worth the leg or he kind of turned like in the Luger match, how he kind of flipped the switch and went vicious after the leg shot uh, with the chair. This this match kind of didn't, I don't think, have that type of wavelength of a story like that. Uh, so that's just what I meant by that. No, sure. I mean, but you're not saying that it's lacking in psychology, or or are you? No, no, no. no I, I just meant by that. I mean, that was strictly me just saying. There's no prolonged body part selling. Uh, or working over a body part. Instead of that, which I think is actually pretty clever, they do kind of, like I was stating, the cool down spots and then rationing up with the exchanges. And there's still a lot of little touches uh, with how familiar these guys were together where you do have, you know, Flair actually hitting the cross body for once in his life, but (laughs) getting it reversed, you know. Uh, so there, there is a lot of kind of little intricate touches that they did. Um, I mean, it's, it's. I mean, I would say honestly, uh, if you would have asked me to pre-rank their trilogy before we started, uh, I would have this match last. Mm. Um, on my personal ratings, we'll see coming up if that stays the same. But that's to take nothing away from this match. I mean, it's, uh, like Matt said, I mean, it's one of the best main events of all time for a pay-per-view. So. Well, one other small little thing that I mentioned is that uh, something I liked about this match was that, I mean, we've seen huge, you know lots of flare matches now coming into this. And he, you know, because this is such a big match, he pulled out offense that we haven't seen. You know the butterfly suplex out of nowhere. You know, like he did a lot of moves that um, are kind of there in his arsenal somewhere, and he's only really bringing up out those big guns now. Did you notice that as well? Uh, he placed a black backbreaker also at a very uh, timely moment. I enjoyed that 
uh, yeah, I mean, just a lot of, this match had a lot of great facets to it, so. Fantastic. Well, uh, Meltzer goes five stars, and I, I'm guessing you did too, uh, Matt. Uh, yeah, I went five stars with it. Yeah. Did where did, just uh, just while you're on, uh, where did you go with um, Steamboat Savage? Did, where did I go with it? I went uh, five stars with that too. Now, if you had to choose, I know it's uh, hard to do, but would you take this over the Savage match from WrestleMania three? Yeah, I think so. Um, just because I'm such a fan of the of their uh, Steamboat Flare matches, and that's not you know knock on Savage at all. I mean. Goodness, there uh, they had some excellent matches too. I, I think I'm just such a, an, an NWA WCW fan that I would uh, I would pick that up before I would uh, Steamboat Savage. Chad, would you go the same way? I, I mean, I definitely prefer this over Savage and Steamboat. Um, I mean, I don't I, honestly. I don't know if I would go five stars on this match or not. But I, I think that's strictly, I don't want that to sound like I'm downgrading the match or dissing on it. It's just when I think about the matches I would go five stars on, I really think of probably the handful, 10 to 15 matches that I think are the best of all time. Uh, so, I mean, for instance, the only match I know for sure that I would go five stars on that we've reviewed in these podcasts would be... Uh, the Magnum Tully I Quit match. Right. Okay. Then, I mean, and, and this certainly is in the competition or conversation, mm. you know, compared to that match for me. Ch- Chad, um, would you said that you would consider this one the third match out of the trilogy as third third best out of the trilogy. Would you not give this five stars because of the other two matches that are you know, considered better matches? Um, I, I usually try not to go with that. Um, I do think that I just have a vivid memory of kind of from what I remembered of these three matches. One, I mean, this match really went by fast, but I always remember kind of just with the Clash 6 match how I mean, they, they're in there for 38 minutes, 40 minutes. At, the, at one point, the timekeeper calls, and I think it's like the 35 or 40-minute mark, and Terry Funk on commentary states, you know, it feels like they've been out there for 10 minutes. And I remember always thinking, because that was exactly what was in my head at the same time. So I just think the pace of the Clash 6 match and the exchanges in the Wrestle War match, I mean, honestly, this time I thought the exchanges with the punches and chops was uh, more intense and stiffer than I remembered. Mm-hmm. So th- this might end up overtaking that Wrestle War match. Going in, I'd always had the Clash 6 match as my favorite of the three. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if that holds up, just because I think they kind of maintain the same pace and intensity that they had here for 55 minutes and included some more uh, prolonged body part selling, which I think Steamboat excels in. So, Yeah, I think uh, I think this one is probably my favorite match, but the I feel like the the better match, the best match of the trilogy is the is the Clash Six. I just like this is my favorite personal favorite just for uh, 
Steamboat finally winning the title. Right. It's it's definitely a cool moment, and I'm really glad that the uh, that you know almost all of the fans were with him when he won it because that would have been really unfortunate. You know, me and Parv went really long on the psychology of this feud in the Clash Five show, uh, but it would have been really unfortunate if the pop would have been anticlimactic and people would have been booing Steamboat if he'd have won the belt right here. Yeah, um, I I think it's a little bit difficult to compare them because um, it's almost like uh, the Clash match is an epic, right? And this is um, this is as you said, Matt, a kind of ideal twenty-minute main event. Um, so it's it's a I don't I don't know. We'll have to come to it before I uh, before I say more. But it, I I feel like it's hard to compare them. Um, just because, just because this is not an epic match. Three different matches and three different stories in each match. So you're right when you say it's it's really hard to compare uh, when there's so when there are three different stories to be told. Just before we go into uh, our end of show awards here, what do we think of uh, this as an overall card? Because I've seen some people talk about it as being a great pay per view. Um, I'm not sure. I, I would say this has come to the NWA sort of protocol right around this time. I would say a good pay-per-view, um, probably on level with the Starcade match. I don't think the undercard was quite as good in some spots, but the main event was a little bit better, uh, even though that Flair and Luger match was really good also. I mean, the main event here is one of the best matches of all time, so... Uh, I mean, I, w- I would say a good pay-per-view. I wouldn't have been disappointed if I'd have bought this, but uh, I wouldn't have been, you know, jumping around saying this is one of the best pay-per-views ever, top to bottom, either, certainly. Yeah. And what's your, what's your view, uh, Matt, the same? Um, actually, I would say, I would suggest if you're going to watch this pay-per-view, I would get the, the Turner edit. I know you guys are kind of down on the Turner edits. But I feel like some of the longer matches are some of the lower quality matches. Like uh like the two opener two two opening matches are are not that great, so to see them edited is probably the best way to see them. Um if you and if you get them that way, I don't think they're it's that bad of a of a pay-per-view. Um you got you know the you got a lot of title changes and a lot of story changes uh storyline changes in, in the, the current product. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was fine and certainly capped off by a great pay-per-view main event. So, um, I would, I, I gave it a slight thumbs up. I would, I would certainly see, like I said, certainly suggest getting the, uh, the Turner home video, uh, edit over the pay-per-view version just for the, just because, you know, the opener is 16 minutes long and it's Michael Hayes match. I mean, come on now. <laughs> and, uh, Sting and Butch Reed, of course, so they're the same, kind of the same vein. It's 20 minutes long, and that, that shouldn't be. So, yeah, I, that's what I would go with. The Turner Home Edit, thumbs up. Okay. Um, d- yeah, I mean, yeah, I d- it, it's obviously everybody needs to see the main event here. But if you, if you take that match away, um, yeah, the midnight stuff is quite fun, isn't it? Yes. I'd I'd uh, I'd agree. Uh, I think. Um, 
So, uh, at the end of our shows, Matt, uh, as you know, we do um, <laughs> three awards. Uh, I think Match of the Night is pretty much um, uh, a four-run conclusion, but let's go through it anyway. What would your Match of the Night be? Uh, yeah, my Match of the Night, uh, this would be a huge surprise. I'd be Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat for the NWA World Title. <laughs> Chad? <laughs> Going with uh, Michael Hayes and Russian <laughs> Assassin number one. <laughs> uh, against the yeah, Steamboat and Flair. Yeah, and uh, it's obviously uh, three for three. Do you remember, do you remember when uh, the Atomic Elbow uh, picked uh, Pez Watley for MVP? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, who's your MVP? I think this is probably a more interesting question. Um. Rick, it's got to be Ricky Steamboat, man. He was—he he won the title. I know it's—I know it's all fake, but you still get into it. It's—he uh, had a great, uh, one of the greatest pay-per-view main events of all time. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely go with Ricky Steamboat. I'd, I'd actually go with Steamboat as well. Um, I think I'm usually a little lower on Steamboat than most people, but uh, certainly. This is certainly probably the highlight of his career. A great moment, great match. Flair was fabulous in that match as well, but this is Steam Oats' moment, so uh, I'm going to give it to him. Yeah, and honestly, the only person who uh, is giving the uh, main event any competition here, I actually think Jim Ross um, has a great match. I mean, that's one of the best calls of his career, I think, that uh, main event. He's very good, isn't it? I'm not going to pick Jim Ross. I'm just saying that, okay. like, if you were going to force a conversation, um, this is probably one of his best performances. Would you agree, Chad? For, just for um, the main event. I mean, he, he's really strange in the stuff I've been watching in 1990, and also, uh, I mean, I thought his call in Starcade '88, the main event, was really good. He's really strange in that kind of with the undercard matches, he does the jabs at the at the uh, WWF, and he has all the athletic backgrounds and all that stuff, and you just a lot of times want him to shut the hell up. But uh, <laughs> but when he gets to the main event, he can really kind of paint a picture, and all the kind of background and history that he brings in, it seems really appropriate to where you feel like you're watching, uh, you know, an historic event, and he was fabulous here, absolutely. Yeah, although I have just remembered him talking about Mike Rotunda's, you know, athletic career when he was nine years old. So, um, yeah, but I, I think I'm going to go with Steamboat as well. It's it's his it's his night, and um, it like I I honestly uh, during the match I like he probably threw more chops and they were really good and everything he did was great. Um, so yeah, uh, Billy Graham Award. Superstar Billy Graham. Matt. Oh, what, what exactly is that? <laughs> no, no. Um, we give the Billy Graham Award to the uh, worst performer on the night. Least, least valuable player. Oh, boy. Um, I would probably have to go with Butch Reed. Of, I mean, you got to give Jack Victory kind of a break. He's working double duty. <laughs> Um, I'd go, yeah, and he, and he did fine, like uh, Chad said in the uh, Midnight's match. I would, I'd go with Butch Reed. I'd, I just think by this point in his career, unless, I mean, of course, you know, you think about Doom. He did great in Doom, but 
far as the singles career, is the, the hacksaw Butch Reed, I think it was pretty much over for him. He just wasn't wasn't motivated much anymore. Chad, uh, I kind of want to pick Mike Rotunda, but I'm not. Uh, I am going to pick uh, Russian Assassin number one. <laughs> Uh, he can kind of get the honor. He was bad in the opener. Uh, he hasn't been good in anything we've seen so far, but he had <laughs> another bad performance here, so he's my Billy Graham winner tonight. Who is that again? The Angel of Death, right? Yeah, Angel of Death. Yep. Actually got outperformed by victory on this show, <laughs> so that's that's pretty uh, pretty tough to do, actually, to be worse than victory. Yeah, I didn't think anybody was terrible uh, this evening. Uh, actually, Russian Assassin 1 was pretty bad actually, in that match. Um, I'm going to go with him as well. I just think he's... Uh, I'm tempted to go with Hiro Matsuta because I don't really understand what he's... I don't even really understand what his deal is. Like, what's he even doing? Yeah, and this is this is it for him, I think, of what we see. So I don't know if you want to go on like a long uh, <laughs> eulogy to his great run with these past two shows, but yeah, I think I mean I think it was pretty clear from what we've seen that he added nothing. So he they got. I mean, it, it's kind of weird how they can make a determination like that on Matsuda that. I agree with, and he's out of there, but yet somebody like the Russian Assassins, it seems like they've been in the scene for years now, and they kind of just hang around, and nobody, uh, somebody's still really high on Jack Victory. So, <laughs> who knows? Uh, well, I mean, Hiro Matsuta, right? He makes Mr. Fuji look like Bobby Heenan. Yeah, I mean, he, he added nothing to the match. We didn't hear him cut anything of a promo. Uh, he basically got beat up by Ricky Steamboat at Clash Five. That's his most memorable moment. So, not I'm, a great run. I'm gonna give. Yeah, he kind of looked concerned from time to time, but he never really like did anything about it. I I'm gonna give uh, the Russian Assassin a break here and uh, go with Hiro Matsuda. We saw him in three matches and two promos, and he did nothing in any of them. And he's probably taking home. You know, good money. So, I'm picking him. Not bad. Um. Okay, great. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, do, do you want to do uh, comments, Chad, or should we wait? Should we wait till Clash Six? Should we just do comments yeah, on the Clash shows? Yeah. If you want to see the comments um, on our Clash Five show, you can check them. I know we had a few over at uh, Pro Wrestling Only, so you can check them out there. Um, and then we'll just. Chug along to Clash 6, which is another uh, Flair versus Steamboat match I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, I, I, I think basically we'll, uh, we'll do comments on, uh, on the Clash shows, give our, give our guests a break here. <laughs> um, all right, well, uh, thanks a lot, uh, Matt. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. I uh, appreciate all the uh, good words you had to say about the site, and uh, I really enjoy the podcast. Keep it going. Yeah, thanks a lot. And Chad, I'll see you next week. All right. See you. Thanks, Matt. Uh Uh-huh. Thank you.